The scripture reading is from 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Do you like surprises? Like if someone tells you that they got you an awesome present, but they won't tell you what it was. Maybe you have guesses. Maybe you try to do some research to figure out what it could be. Well, in today's passage, Peter tells us about a group of prophets who are waiting for a promised present from God. They know some things about what it is supposed to look like, but there's a lot more that they want to know. Before we jump right in, let's remind ourselves where we are in the letter. Our passage for today starts with concerning this salvation. What salvation? It's the one Peter has been telling us about for the last few verses. This salvation has two sides to it. On the one hand, it is an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. But on the other, it is hidden away in heaven. Peter's hearers are headed for glory and honor in Jesus. But for now, they are in the midst of testing and trial. Peter's hearers love and believe in Jesus, but they cannot see him. This salvation is something amazing that they have now, but it is also something they have to look forward to by faith. In order to encourage them about the all-surpassing value of this salvation, Peter reminds them of the Old Testament prophets who waited patiently for this salvation to come in the first place. We're going to see three points about this salvation. Number one, this salvation is what the prophets were looking forward to. Number two, this salvation is announced through spirit-empowered gospel preaching. Number three, this salvation is the desire of angels. Let me repeat that. Number one, this salvation is what the prophets were looking forward to. Number two, this salvation is announced through spirit-empowered gospel preaching. Number three, this salvation is the desire of angels. I will warn you, the first point will be the longest, uh, the second points will be shorter, so uh, since you're listening to this recorded, perhaps you can put it on two times speed like your favorite podcast if you need to, uh, but it will take us a little longer to deal with everything in the first point. So, the first point. This salvation is what the prophets were looking forward to. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Who are these prophets that Peter is talking about? 
Peter is probably using the word prophet as a global category that includes everybody to whom God revealed himself in the Old Testament. Another way to put this is that these prophets are everyone involved in producing the scriptures of the Old Testament. We can see this by looking at some of the other places the theme shows up in the New Testament. When Philip comes to Nathanael to tell him of this strange man he has met, from Nazareth of all places, he says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. When Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, according to Matthew 26:56, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. In Luke 24, Luke tells us of a couple of discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus who meet a man who, unbeknownst to them, is the risen Christ himself. Luke says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And later on in the same chapter, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice the all there in Luke 24, 27. All the prophets point forward to Jesus. And we have specific examples as well. Jesus says that Abraham rejoiced to see his day in John 8, 56. Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me in John 5, 46. In Acts 3, 24, Peter says that Samuel and those who came after him proclaimed the days of Jesus. In Mark 12, 37, Jesus shows that David called Christ his Lord. According to John 12, 41, the great prophet Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and wrote of him. And we don't have time to list all the quotations of Jonah and Jeremiah and Joel and all the other prophets whose words the New Testament applies to Jesus as their fulfillment. Jesus and the apostles are clear that the whole Old Testament points forward to Jesus and the salvation that is found in him. That so many holy men and women, we don't want to forget Deborah and Huldah, that so many holy men and women were looking forward in eager anticipation to this salvation certainly recommends it as something that we should pay attention to. But Peter tells us that the words of these prophets are more than just a human witness. Look at verse 11. These prophets were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Or maybe instead of what person or time, we should translate what time or circumstances, or which time and what sort of time. The Greek there is a little ambiguous, but the point is clear either way. They are looking forward to this event in the future because the spirit of Christ in them was indicating it. The prophecies of the Old Testament are not just the thoughts and musings of very holy and pious people. No, they come from God, the Holy Spirit. 
as Peter will say in his second letter, 2 Peter 1, 20-21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by a human will, but humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In our text today, there are two verbs to describe the Spirit's activity, indicating and predicting. But predicting is a bit of a colorless translation of this second verb, which we could translate pre-witnessing or witnessing beforehand. The words of Scripture are not just a human witness to God, but they are God's own witness to God. They aren't just people talking about God, but God talking about God. There is a Trinitarian dynamic here. Peter has started his blessing in verse 3 by showing us the mercy and power of God the Father, giving us new life with his Son, Jesus Christ. And now Peter completes his blessing with the Holy Spirit, who witnesses to the Son. In the Holy Spirit, we meet a God who does not just speak to us from the outside over there, but who enters into us opens our eyes, opens our hearts, opens our tongues so that we can see and praise God with him. The Holy Spirit is that new lover who can't wait to tell you about her beloved. Uh, He's so great. He's so awesome. You just have to know how great he is too. You know, she uh, posts about the first date on Facebook immediately. Oh, and he's coming to visit next month. I'm so excited for you to meet him. And so, hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus has arrived, the Holy Spirit is already telling people about him. The prophets are, as it were, lifted up into the relationship of the Trinity as the Spirit shares his love for Jesus with them. And they are searching and inquiring and waiting in anticipation, when is this guy going to show up? They can't wait. By the way, this is why we preach from the Old Testament in this church. Sometimes you find that people don't like the Old Testament all that much. Maybe it doesn't seem as relevant, or it has long sections about food laws and sacrifices and genealogies. But Peter says it is about Jesus. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God. And do you know what he says next? Useful. All scripture, says Paul, is useful. What? Even the genealogies? Even the lists of different kinds of sacrifices? Even the journey itinerary from numbers? Hey, guys, don't look at me. I'm not just saying that this is important because I'm a huge Old Testament nerd, although I am. The Apostle Paul says that it is useful. And, you know, he might know a thing or two about it, After all, for Paul and Peter, the Old Testament probably was their whole Bible. The Gospels hadn't been written yet, and they themselves were writing some of the first New Testament letters. So, they knew their Old Testament well, they preached from it every week, and you can bet that they say these things from experience, because they met Christ there. Now, I admit, it's not always going to be easy to see that usefulness. And that's part of the onus that falls on those of us who are called to be teachers and preachers, who go to school to learn Hebrew, so that we can figure out how to unlock the meaning of some of these passages. It is okay if you have a hard time with the Old Testament, because it can be really hard. 
But let me encourage you not to give up on it. Don't avoid it. You might have to take a bit of a step of faith in your Bible reading and trust what Paul and Peter have to say here, that the Spirit can show you useful knowledge about who Jesus is from the Old Testament. But I would encourage you to take that step. Okay, so the Spirit is witnessing to Christ in the Old Testament. What is the content of that witness? What is it that the Spirit has to say about Christ? Let's pull out some of the descriptions from the text. Verse 10 talks about salvation. God had acted in history, demonstrated his power by rescuing his people, by bringing them out of Egypt, by giving them a land, by bringing them back from exile in Babylon. All of these were salvations. But the prophets knew there is a bigger saving act ahead. Verse 10 also calls it grace. Grace is God's free favor given to us as a gift we don't deserve. In fact, we deserve quite the opposite. And so the prophets look forward to a greater grace, a greater forgiveness, a greater closeness to God. Not that they hadn't experienced God's grace and God's forgiveness before, but they're looking forward to something bigger. But the most important summary here is probably the words of verse 11, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Let me run that by you again. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Let's break that down. What does Christ mean? Is it Jesus' last name? No, it's a title. Christos in Greek means anointed one, and it's just a translation of a Hebrew word that also means anointed one, Mashiach, or, if that's a little hard to say, Messiah. This word refers to the act of anointing someone with oil, which sets them apart as God's chosen leader. In the Old Testament, it especially referred to the king, the chosen son of David, And when Israel lost their king after the exile, they looked forward to a future promised king whom God would send to bring in his kingdom. And they called that man the Messiah. So it should come as no surprise that the prophets are looking forward to Christ the Messiah. But the next part might be a little surprising. The suffering of Christ and the subsequent glory. In other words... Suffering first, glory later. Messiah has to go through suffering to get to the glory. This picture of a suffering Messiah didn't fit everyone's ideal of who the Messiah would be. Many people expected to get to the glory part right away, to have a powerful warrior Messiah who would drive out the Romans and establish Israel as a visible kingdom in the Middle East. In fact, There was once a time when Peter himself had an issue with this picture. You see, Peter's not the one who invented this way of summarizing the message of the Old Testament. Jesus himself shares this teaching with his disciples in Mark 8.31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So Jesus says, I have to suffer, I have to die, and after that, resurrection, new life, 
glory. And how does Peter immediately react? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine it? Jesus, I'm not sure if you've got that right. Are you sure that you are interpreting the Old Testament correctly? Are those passages in Isaiah about the suffering servant really about the Messiah? Surely not. But Jesus has to rebuke him and say, Get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter was so absorbed with the idea of Messiah's glory, Messiah's power, but he didn't get the suffering part. And Satan used that glory obsession to make him a temptation to Jesus, to turn aside from the path of suffering. But now, Peter gets it. From the other side of the resurrection, Peter now understands what the Old Testament was all about. Messiah had to suffer and die for our sins, and only through that could glory come. It's a good reminder that, though the whole Old Testament does point forward to Christ, it is not always clear about everything. We see that in this passage. The prophets are peering ahead, trying to make out exactly what the Spirit is revealing to them. It's like in Daniel 12, 8, when Daniel has heard this long, intricate vision, and he says, I heard, but I did not understand. Perhaps you can identify with Daniel sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament, maybe particularly some of the prophecies in Daniel. I heard, but I did not understand. And what is the answer from the angel when Daniel asks about it? Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. It's not going to make sense now, Daniel, because it is for later. Or as Peter says in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. You see, Jesus is the key to the meaning of the Old Testament. He's the missing puzzle piece. He is the dramatic reveal at the end of the mystery novel, when you realize that it always had to lead here. All the clues were there. If only you could have seen them. And you can see that this was what it had been about the whole time. Peter was a pious Jew. He knew the Bible. But after he met the risen Christ, he saw it in a whole new way. And for the first time, understood how it all fit together. Well, we could say a lot more about this pattern of suffering first, glory second. Get that pattern in your heads. Suffering first, glory second. But that's actually going to be one of the major themes of the whole rest of the book, and I don't want to steal Mike's thunder, so we'll move on to the next point. Second point. This salvation is now announced to you through spirit-empowered gospel preaching. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So, this salvation which the prophets were seeking and inquiring into, it has now been announced to Peter's audience through the preaching of the good news. In the previous verse, Peter has praised the holy scriptures of the prophets as a spirit-inspired witness to who Jesus is. But after that, 
Peter doesn't just tell everyone to go read the Bible on their own. Not that that would be a bad thing. It would be a great thing. Although, probably a lot of his audience didn't know how to read on their own anyway. Instead, Peter points them to preaching and says that the truths to which the Holy Scriptures testify are announced to them through preaching. Notice that the Holy Spirit shows up here as well. Those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So, it is not as if the Holy Spirit inspires the scriptures, but then leaves us on our own to read them. No, he is active in the preaching of the word as well. Notice also the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter reminds us that after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in believers and empower his church with the various spiritual gifts it needs to function and grow. There is a new presence, a new power of the Spirit here beyond what the people of God had in the Old Testament. Old Testament believers were still saved by faith in Christ. It's clear from this passage that they had the witness of the Holy Spirit to Christ through their prophets. But they were saved by looking forward to a reality that had not yet appeared, whereas we are saved by looking back to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. True, we also look forward to his return, but the reality of God's kingdom has already broken into our world in a decisive way in Jesus. And so, now we have the Spirit. And one of the ways he exercises his power among us is through the power of preaching. This should affect the way we think about preaching. This is not just a lecture. My job as a preacher is to take the words of God from this Bible and announce them to you. And as I do that, I expect the Spirit to be at work. We don't do preaching because a focus group or an educational expert has told us that is the most effective means to communicate our message. We do it because the Bible teaches that God uses preaching to press his word into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. The Second Helvetic Confession, an early Reformation confession, puts it strongly. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Now, that's a very strong way to put it. Uh, Let me be clear. I, as a preacher, am not on the same level as prophets or apostles. My words are not directly inspired by the Holy Spirit. I am not inerrant. But, insofar as what I say in a sermon comes out of this Bible, it is God's word to you. God calls preachers as heralds to announce his words under his authority. There was a general who was pinned down by enemy fire, but a gap in the wall behind his position allowed the smallest drummer boy to make it through and carry his orders back to headquarters. That little drummer boy had the authority to command the whole army, but not because he was so wise in battle tactics, but only because he was carrying the general's orders and only in so far as he accurately relayed them. His authority was entirely derived. It went not one step beyond the general's words. This is how preaching works. I don't have the right 
to just give you my own opinion from the pulpit. To tell you what seems like a good idea to me. No, I am bound to announce to you what God has said in the Bible. And by the way, I welcome correction. You've got the Spirit too. Many of you have read this Bible far longer than I have. You should be checking what I say against it to make sure I'm telling you the truth. And as I endeavor to do that, I pray that the Spirit would make his word bear fruit in your hearts. That's something I can't do. I can't change your hearts. I can't even change my heart. But I trust the scriptural promise that the Spirit will be at work. In fact, I depend on it. Do you think I can show you, Jesus, that my words could somehow have the rhetorical power to reveal God? Only the Spirit can reveal Jesus to us. What a mystery that he chooses to do so through something as plain as preaching. There's an application here for listening to bad preaching, or listening to preaching of somebody you have a difficult time with. I hope that this application will not be too relevant to you today, but most of us at some point in our Christian walk have the experience of sitting under preaching that is challenging. Maybe it doesn't fit with how we understand the Bible. Maybe it just isn't to our taste or our preferences about how sermons should be. Maybe we know something in the preacher's life that doesn't match up with what he is saying. Some of you may have had the experience of being a pastor's wife and having to listen to your husband bring the word of God when you have just had a fight with him that morning. What a challenge that can be. In these situations, there is still a call for us to come to the preaching of God's word in faith. We should expect him to have some grace from his word for us, even if the sermon is unbiblical. It may not be totally unbiblical. There may be some point of contact with the text that can teach us something. My point is that we should have such respect for preaching that we come to it expecting the Spirit to do work, to show us Jesus, to give us grace. This is what Peter leads us to expect when he says that preaching is by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I want to add another nuance here as well. While we should expect gospel preaching to be the center of the Spirit's work in pressing the word into our hearts, it's not the only way that the Spirit makes his word dwell in his church. There's a sense in which the Spirit works through all Christians preaching God's word to each other. This is Peter's expectation in his sermon in Acts 2, when he quotes the prophet Joel to say that all God's people, young and old, male and female, will have the Spirit, and all will prophesy. And when Paul talks about the word dwelling richly among the congregation, he talks about all Christians teaching and admonishing one another, especially through song. There's a lot more we could say about that. I'm not going to unpack it at length now, but I mention it today to remind us that if God's word is really dwelling richly among us, it won't just look like me and Mike and David talking about the Bible from the pulpit but it will look like all of us speaking biblical truth into each other's lives. Under this new administration of the Holy Spirit, 
we all have a part to play in pointing each other to the Jesus we have met in the Bible. Okay, so that's the second point. This salvation has been announced through Spirit-empowered preaching. Third point, this salvation is the desire of angels. Peter ends verse 12 with, things into which angels long to look. And so I want to end my sermon, too, with the angels. You see, it's not just prophets and apostles and preachers who are captivated by Jesus. The angels are, too. Is that surprising to you? It probably should be. Think of the grand throne room vision of Isaiah 6, where the seraphim shield their faces to the brilliant glory of the presence of God as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy. Will an angel who has spent age upon age in the presence of God's glory, a vision for which you and I, in our sinfulness, have not yet been prepared, will an angel who already has such a glorious vision, really find something to look at in this lowly and humble revelation of God, God in human flesh, a Messiah who suffers and dies. We know that God put on flesh to come close to us in a way we could understand because we could not bear his full glory. But surely an angel is beyond such things. Surely this is the basic lesson for mere mortals and there on to Theology 201. And yet, Peter has the angels longing, desiring, hungering. The word for longing in the Greek really is intense. These angels long to catch a glimpse of this salvation Christ has invited us into. And I think Jesus agrees with Peter here. For he says in Luke 15.10 that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And as the author of Hebrews describes our praise of God, the angels are there too. As he says in Hebrews 12.22, that we have come to a heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Do you think that as you gather together in your small coronavirus quarantined home worship services this morning, that there are angels present? That they gaze and wonder and rejoice when they see you repenting of your sin and praising God? When they see what God's grace has done in your life? Friends, believe it. I think that the ancient theologian Theodoret of Cyrus, in his comment on this verse, has done a good job of explaining why this might be. He reminds us that all things came into existence through Jesus, and that God's plan is to bring all things together again through Jesus. Jesus is the end, towards which all creation moves, all of it turns and revolves around him. All things include the angels, and so they too looked forward to the final revelation of who God is in Christ. Theodoret argues that the angels could not fully receive who God is without humans being brought back to God as well. I think he's on the right track.
the angels long to gaze at this salvation because they long to gaze at the Son of God. They just can't get enough God. And God incarnate. God persevering through suffering to glory. God rescuing lost sinners. God in his mercy forgiving them. God in his patience leading them through their own suffering to glory. This is a revelation of God they could never receive from their ancient and blessed vision of the divine glory. And that's what they see even now in the heavenly throne room. God incarnate, Jesus in glory, but still marked with the scars of his suffering that brought our salvation. And there is nothing more beautiful, nothing that can satisfy an angel's yearning for the beauty of God quite like this Christ and his love for sinners. How about you? Can you see that beauty too? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit who pointed the prophets towards the truth about Jesus and who is pointing us towards Jesus as well today. We pray that your Spirit would help us to believe in Jesus, to love Jesus, to rejoice in Jesus with the angels. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.